Hello, it's uh, iBook Bindings uh, podcast. It's uh, the 17th episode, and uh, today our guest comes from Greece, from uh, Athens. It's Dimitris Kutsipitidis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my bindery tour. Here's the first look of it. I really like the fact that it is an undivided space. It makes moving about and arranging things very convenient. But I also like the fact it has a low ceiling and it's a basement practically because it kind of gives it that Hobbit house vibe, if you know what I mean, makes it feel cozy. So the bindery could be summed up as a tale of four benches and we'll, we'll start with this one, which is the main bench where I do most of my bookbinding work start with the tale of four benches because this also sounds like something Tolkien could have you know used to the title. It wasn't it wasn't really intentional. I mean I noticed after well after recording the tour I no the yeah. I I I thought about the tale of four benches but after I did the tour I noticed that in three different um cases I mentioned something Tolkien related but that wasn't, yeah. you know, that wasn't, um, I didn't plan for that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I uh, my, my dream bindery would be, you know, something like the Hobbit houses shown in the films, you know, be, <laughs> be some sort of basement, have a low ceiling and have arches. I love arches in interior space. I really love them. Uh, well, for now, I guess that's, uh, that's the best I can do, what you see. But um, I think uh, the workspace should at least to some point reflect, you know, the person working in it. Um, you have to feel at home and not just because it's roomy or uh, or you know it's easy to get there you have to 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 express yourself you have to be able to see something of your of your creative side and your character reflected in the space you work in uh, yeah, I, I guess that makes me a hobbit. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this uh, tale of four tables also resonated with me because uh, uh, my my tale, uh, uh, the tale of my workshop was also a tale of four tables, uh, which I also made uh, uh, by myself as you did, and uh, uh, I, I had to I had to give away two of them uh, when we moved to the Netherlands, but uh, two of them are still. Uh, uh with with us and uh yeah there's hmm. the one of them <laughs> and the second one is still used for for uh you know like a workbench like a proper workbench uh, I, I i assume uh, this is not your first uh workshop has it grown over the years uh, how much smaller was it when you were starting Oh, uh, it was, uh, it actually was larger, uh, like twice the size. However, it was an old apartment. So the actual workspace was a room 
uh, one third the size of my current binary. So it was, in essence, it was smaller. And it, uh, it was uh, in, in a really old building. It was so old, it had a, a bombing refuge in, you know, in, uh, in the foundations uh, at the center of Athens. And uh, it was, you know, everything was wrong with that building. It, it, didn't, it didn't even have running water to give you an idea of, uh, of how bad was it. Uh, but, uh, but it didn't stop me. And I, I have fond memories, you know, of that bindery in which I've spent almost, I think almost 10 years. Uh, but it's, it's definitely an upgrade, you know. Uh, it also looks uh, like it could be enough for more than one man working at, at the same time. Would you like to have a permanent assistant? Hmm. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I would like to have a permanent assistant. And it's, uh, uh, it's one of the reasons I'm kind of sad that uh, uh, none of my students so far has been able to pursue bookbinding, you know, as a career. Um, that said, I, I feel I would need an even bigger binder. Uh, in theory, two or three people could work in there, but I'm, I'm so all over the place and that I feel it isn't even enough for me, you know. Uh, if it was uh, half, fifty percent larger, I think that would be that would be ideal. Oh, we, uh, I, I think I think you will enjoy uh, our sixteenth podcast that we recorded uh, uh, for for which we invited uh, once again. Uh, yeah, Peter Garrity, because uh, he shows us uh, his humongous workshop, uh, and uh, uh, I'm sure you will uh, find some nice ideas uh, in, in, in his, uh, in his uh, space. I've seen the first <laughs> part, but I haven't uh, seen the part with the, with the tour. Yeah, it's, it's an editing right now, so maybe it will be uh, published today, uh, maybe early next, early next week. I'm not sure about today because it's not the best to share videos on Fridays. It's, uh, it's big enough for five people, yet he says he couldn't be happier working there alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I placed it there in front of the entrance to receive as much daylight as possible. And you can see behind it is where I store most of my supplies, my tools, the books I'm currently working on. You can see the leathers there on top, uh, shelves with books, paper, book cloth rolls, glues, storing boxes and whatnot, lots of stuff there. And here you can see some of the tools I use on a regular basis, starting with um, the paring knives, which I use to thin down the leather, 
some of those I've bought while others I've made myself I've actually many more of those some are for my students pairing knives are one of the things that you can never have too many of really um, here's a type holder to tool titles my stylus set the backing hammer really love this fellow Professor Tolkien's insignia which I used on a commission for Silmarillion that I did a while back oh, um, bone folders of course the perhaps the most basic tool of a bookbinder uh, you can never have too many of those too it's one of those things I wanted uh, to ask you about uh, the tools because uh, with uh, your skills and uh, uh, I'd expect that most of the tools you use are made by you and yet you say that you use your own pairing knives uh, uh, for, uh, tools for leather tooling I don't know the names of but other than that are uh, uh, all the tools where do you get them why don't you make them do you prefer the ones you already have well uh, you practically you can't make everything although that would be awesome um, I, I make what I can uh, I, or at least I try to and the tools uh, whether that is you know a press or whether that is a finishing tool uh, hope we have enough time left to talk about this as well. Uh, are you know it's it's fun to make them, but it's also it it really uh, creates a different sort of relationship with your work because uh, it's there there is a deeper connection between what you're working on and you because the medium through which you do that. Uh, is something you also created so it's an extension of you so the binder and the binding blend more in this way um, at least at least i feel that way and i i make the finishing tools and as you'll see in the tour i make lots of other stuff as well and hopefully I, I'll by someday I'll be surrounded almost by uh, a binary that has been mostly made by me that's not of course to say that I don't really like the work of other uh, binders and craftsmen who make things for bookbinding there are some some amazing stuff out there I would die to you know to get um, I think I think it all plays in how you feel about your workspace in the end if you had all the time in the world right now what tools would you make for yourself what is your dream project everything I would build the binder itself <laughs> starting with the house yeah exactly exactly i i'd 
I, the answer is everything, really. And uh, I often think about that. I wish we had, you know, a lifespan of of 500 years so I could learn proper woodworking. Um, I could learn more about, you know, metalwork. It's uh, it's exciting, and one one can only wonder what things an artisan could achieve uh, if he could go, if he could become so versed in so many different crafts. And that's why I really admire the Homo Universalis concept of the Renaissance. Uh, it's, uh, it's so exciting, you know, thinking of the, the possibilities but then they also say that the last man who knew everything and could do everything died during the renaissance <laughs> at some point it just became <laughs> unfeasible exactly uh, what but it's well, a nice dream you still can can uh, can uh, try to do that uh, within your niche not not within the uh, universal no uh, 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 you know, body of knowledge, but within your niche, it's hard, but it's still achievable for for bookbinding. But then we, we've we've had a guest who casts his own font, and that's well, yeah. going a bit too far. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But... Why not? Why not? Yes, 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 yes. Do that. Do that. Yeah. The more, the better. I loved your comment uh, about pairing knives. Uh, that's uh, never too many, and uh, I, I I definitely agree. And I have something like fifteen or twenty of them, uh, uh, different styles, different sizes, uh, uh, from different. Uh, I I got them from different people and uh, bought them myself uh, sometimes. But uh, yeah, it's definitely something you can never have enough. <laughs> True, true enough, because um, they're, they're essential. It's a tool you use very often. And uh, there are many reasons to have, you know, many pairing knives. They, there are different types that are better suited for specific tasks. And they also, sometimes they, they get blunt during work, if you're working with the leather that's not cooperating. So you don't want to stop your workflow and you know, uh, hone the knife. You just want to grab another one and go on. And they're also they're also a nice thing to have. You know, it's like yeah. as always with tools and supplies. Yeah. Uh, when I was uh, studying at the uh, American Academy of Bookbinding, uh, one of our teachers told us that uh, uh, to to teach they travel with all their tools. Usually, because there are tools in the in the academy, of course, but uh, every every master prefers their own tools uh, uh, to use their own tools, and uh, they have to uh, put a note for TSA uh, that these are bookbinding tools, not uh, you know uh, some instruments uh, of death, instruments of death or something like that. <laughs> Uh, also, also uh, the small backing hammer attracted my attention. Uh, uh, it was. Uh, did you modify the just just the hammer uh, for that, or did it did it come uh, with such a short? No, handle? no, I modified oh, it because I, I I never saw a, a short version of of a backing hammer before mm. that. No, I I cut the I cut the handle off. 
Moving on, here are some press boards and here's my cabinet where I store my lead typeset. It's an old Greek printing font which is called Acropoleos. Moving on with the tour, here's my second bench, my press and paper bench. You can see my two nipping presses here. The one on the left I made many years ago when I was learning bookbinding. It looks atrocious, but surprisingly it gets the job done, so I still use it from time to time when the main press is full. Now this is, is not a bookbinder's press, it's actually a printing press which I've modified by adding two bars to increase its daylight. And this has proved most helpful. By the way, you can see, you can see a lot of post-it notes. Um, if you observe closely, you can find them in many places. And usually the binder is crawling with them but I removed most of them so you wouldn't think I'm crazy. Uh, actually that handmade press uh, brought me some memories. When Stefan started teaching bookbinding, he made quite a few of those. Uh, uh, he made a few presses, a few sewing machines. So, mm, uh, I, I remember the posts, yeah. I was surprised to hear you're still using yours. Uh, well, yes, um, and I, it's, well, to be honest, it, it kind of complains a bit, you know, when I use it, it creaks, it says, oh, leave me alone, I want to rest, but uh, <laughs> it's still, it's still serviceable, so why not, it, and as I, as I mentioned in the tour, it, it works surprisingly well, actually, for its state. You know, I, I've never had, uh, I've never had uh, a binding that, you know, went wrong, that I took out from the press and was, you know, imp improperly pressed. And it's funny because it's, as you can see, it's, it's very makeshift. Here are the papers and at the top shelf, you can see my marble paper collection. Which I am terribly fond of. I always hesitate to use one of my favorite papers to commit it to a specific bookbinding project. It's, it's a real problem, I'm working on it. Before moving on, I wanted you to have a look at this setup I've thought of to, to help storing thin leather strips for onlays, labels and leather joints. As you can see, it's very simple to make. All you need are a few screws and clips and it makes, it makes storing your strips and browsing through your stock very convenient. I really wanted to ask you about all those post-it notes. 
Uh, yeah, what, me what, as well. What, what's the, <laughs> what's the system remove them. <laughs> it, it looks like you're having an investigation. It only lacks, you know, those strings going strings, from one place yeah. to another. <laughs> you should see, you should see the how it looked prior to the tour. I mean, they're everywhere. There are post-it notes on post-it notes. Uh, I. I guess I am kind of forgetful or I need to to feel sure that I won't miss something, but it can get uh, it can get a bit out of hand, you know. Uh, I know it's uh, I'm I'm like that unless I uh, uh, write something down, I will certainly forget it. But then, even if I do, it doesn't guarantee anything. So the number exactly, of exactly. So, so why growing. only have one note when you can have two or three? Yes. I, I also have a really big note on my fridge that says which notes I should look at in the morning. Oh, that's a nice. That's a nice idea. I'll, I'll be trying that. Yeah. Uh, the next thing, thing that I saw and that attracted uh, my attention was the uh, storage here for the leather strips, uh, which I thought was quite ingenious because and, and I also am struggling always with uh, with uh, storage ideas and uh, ways to uh, you know to improve uh, the storage. It's it's less about book binding and. Uh, more about uh, plastic stuff. I, I think I should uh, show something uh, I have at the moment here. Uh, I just I just bought a shoe rack from uh, Amazon and uh, I use it to store uh, my uh, plastic. Oh, okay. So originally okay. it was it was a shoe rack, but now it's a it's a, a 3D printer plastic rack. That's nice. <laughs> and, so. Every storage idea I see always attracts my attention because I try to think, okay, how can I use it uh, uh, in my own workshop? Mm. And uh, yeah, so and I like it. Uh, you mean you mean well. the one with the leather strips? Yeah, mm. and with with clamps. Mm. Yeah, and it's colorful. Which yeah, is it looks nice fun. as well. It's uh... yeah, exactly. <laughs> True. I I really liked your uh, marble paper collection. How big is it? Has it already grown out of hand? Well, uh, depends on what one defines as out of hand. You know, I I think uh, I think uh, the phrase doesn't apply for me. I I. I don't think I'll ever have enough to say this is out of hand. Well, you just you just get a larger space, and that's exactly it. you you get a second binary to house your marble paper. It's it's that simple. <laughs> um, I I don't know. I think I may have a hundred or so. Uh, I don't know if that's many, and I'm not sure about the number either. But. Um, uh, there, there are so many, so many amazing marble papers out there. I, I don't even have a fraction of what I'd like. And marble papers are, 
are interesting because they they are one of the first things that I have to decide on when I make a binding, you know. Uh, first, I think of the leather color, and then I have to decide what is the marble paper that I have to, you know, put away for this specific binding. Sometimes it's also vice versa. I, I have a commission and I think, oh, this marble paper really fits with, the, with this project. So let's work based on that. And in that sense, it's, it's uh, often a source of inspiration. So you can never have too many, too much of that, really. And uh, do you buy them from all over the world, or do you do you have your favorite uh, paper makers? Could you perhaps name some names? Well, I'd uh, I'd preferably I'd preferably um, not mention some because uh, it will hurt others. Um, I have, uh, I think. Some of my favorite papers come from uh, a marbler in, uh, in Venice, uh, or is it Florence? Not sure. Uh, however, uh, he has stopped uh, selling them online. You have to get to his shop to buy them. And this has frustrated me a lot uh, because now I hesitate a lot to use them. I mean, I'm, I'm always waiting for the perfect project because I don't have access to more of them. And of course, no project is the perfect project. Uh, and I'm almost thinking of, of traveling there just for the sake of those papers. I mean, uh, anyway, I... It's not, I like you have, it's not like you have to go to the north of Russia for that. I mean, it's, it's a nice of, trip. You, you can go for Venice itself, but who cares? I mean, marble <laughs> papers. <laughs> um, and, so and actually, I, you can probably go there by boat, by ferry, I assume. Yeah, yeah, I think. I think. So you don't have to take a plane. So it's, it sounds like a nice trip. It's uh, Rome is first in my plans, but uh, maybe maybe a detour uh, should be should be also considered. I I try to buy from as many as I can, but of course you know there's a, uh, there's a limit to how often uh, one can do that, unfortunately. Have you, have you ever tried to make a marble paper yourself? Uh, I had um, I had invited a marbler to do a seminar at my at my workshop, and I tried my hand as well. But it's uh, it's one of those things that I feel are better uh, left to the people who are really good with it because in order to get to a point where I would be pleased with the papers I make, I would have to invest too much time in it, you know? So there's, there's such a variety out there that uh, 
it's one of the few cases that I prefer, you know, to to buy it, to not to not try to make it myself. Well, perhaps one day. Perhaps, or perhaps one day I'll get an assistant who is, uh, you know, excited, an apprentice <laughs> who'll do that for me. If you're out there, if you're out there, please, please contact me. And I hope you like to link titles as well, because I hate it. Last but not least, here are two wonderful gifts I've received from fellow bookbinders. I'm actually waiting for a third one, and I'll be very happy to share it with you once it's here. This is the biggest bench in the bindery, where I do my bookbinding classes. Not much to say about it, so I've thought of bringing out some of the books I'm working on, so we could have a brief look at them. Beginning with Brian Zach's Redwall, lovely story by the way, you should definitely read it if you haven't. Um, and although it's still in the planning phase, this is shaping up to be a very, a very promising project. I will not actually be binding this edition. The client has decided to send me a different one, but he wants something very unique. And I plan off on pushing some of my creative boundaries with with this one. I'm excited, but at the same time, I'm kind of intimidated, if I have to be really honest with you. Now, here we have the books of the mysterious Mr. C. You can read uh, a few posts at my blog about past projects with him. Now, the interesting thing with Mr. C is that he often requests us binders to, to include some playful or cheeky element, a jest of shorts uh, in the binding, whether that is a decorative detail or the binding as a whole. And you wouldn't know it's there unless you are familiar with the book's content or with the owner himself. So it's, it's always... Uh, it's always fun and intriguing to work on his books. Here we have Robert Graves' I, Claudius, and Claudius the God, or it might be vice versa, not sure, uh, which are patiently awaiting for their decoration. And these are owned by a book collector. You can see here a lovely volume from the 1600, bound in parchment. It's Omeri Opera, in very good shape, actually. And this, this is humongous. It's uh, more than half a meter tall. This is full of book plates on the Greek Revolution. It's coming apart and we'll need to, to do something very sturdy because it's really heavy. Last but not least, a Lord of the Rings trilogy commission. I've been waiting so long for such a commission to come. 
I'm a big Tolkien fan and it's been years and years. I think I've been waiting for this since I began bookbinding, but it's finally here. As you can see, I'm missing the third volume, but I'm waiting for it to, um, to show up at some local bookshop because shipping currently takes centuries. And so I'm, I'm, really, I'm really happy to work on this one. Do you have some ideas already what you want to do them or you are not ready to share them? It's, uh, it's still more or less in the planning phase. Um, uh, what we've discussed with the client is, um, I suggested at least, that we should do something very classical because Tolkien is in many ways the very definition of classic. You know, it's an epic saga, it's written in a very classic prose, a very epic prose and it's it's very refined and proper so um, I feel you have to somewhat respect the nature of of uh, the story and the books um, for example the Hobbit would be much more suited for an extravagant design binding or at least that's how I see it it's much more fanciful it's a more of a, a light-hearted adventure, whereas uh, Lord of the Rings, it's, uh, it's much larger, it's much, it has some, some deep and dark themes in it, and you, you kind of have to take that into consideration. So we're thinking of something very classic, and perhaps we'll will play a bit more with uh, with the with the case or the cases depending on if it's one or more and uh, perhaps we'll go we'll experiment a bit with design there would you like to uh, one day uh, make a set of bindings for a wider range of uh, Tolkien's work I don't know including Silmarillion and uh, uh, the works that were published by his son after the death death of the author, or um, something like that, because uh, I guess it it can be an interesting project, and uh, you you definitely can you know uh, made them somehow in 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 some elements of design uh, between each other. Mm. Mm. It's uh, it's what have some continuation. It's one of the things uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, and I want to do at some point and not just not just uh, on Tolkien's works. I want to try to make some, you know, some additions, some small runs of bindings uh, based on books I've selected. Uh, I've actually I actually have have uh, an idea about a Hobbit binding. And this I, this is one of the things I really want to try because as much as I enjoy, as much as I enjoy doing design work, uh, as I mentioned, it can be, it can be tiring always coming up with something new. Sometimes you just want to, to create an, to create a concept, to, to work on it and then be able to, to produce more than one piece, and so I would be, I would be happy to, 
you know, to make a small batch, like 20 or so, I don't know, uh, based on a specific book by Tolkien. Uh, and, and other, you know, beloved stories. For example, I, one of my, uh, one of the books I plan to try this first is possibly uh, The Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. I have uh, I have a few ideas okay. for that one. Well, that that would be interesting to see, especially as uh, there were many approaches to the design of uh, animal mm, farm. Exactly. Powers. So uh, it it would be interesting to see your layered approach and uh, of what what uh, comes out of it. And uh, uh, that that's I I also wanted to add that uh, I the thing I love about our podcast is that. Uh, uh, we meet so many different people with so different approaches. And uh, uh, this theme of, uh, uh, we discussed it through throughout uh, several of our previous episodes that uh, what is design binding? Should it be a, a one-off thing? Can, be, can there be uh, several copies of, uh, of a, a design binding? Or should they, they, these copies be a bit different, like we discussed with Mark Cochram uh, recently mm. during our uh, holiday special uh, video? Or uh, should there be copies, uh, more copies, uh, uh, like you discussed it just just a moment ago? And uh, I, I I I really like that all these different approaches they have their right, right to to be there and uh, every every bookbinder and every master uh, uh, has their own uh, choice and ability to choose and to decide on their own and change their opinions over their careers and mm, experiment sure. or not experiment so um, yeah it's a it's a big discussion thanks for mentioning that and uh, that was uh, yeah. the mark onkram uh, interview was an excellent one. I, I actually saw it yesterday and uh, I was really uh, intrigued by his comment on breaking the rules. He said that um, you have to first know what you're doing in order to break the rules or else you're doing nothing. And I feel that's a thing that's very prevalent in our age, in art in general, you know, it's it's break the rules just for the sake of breaking the rules, and you're not you're not making a comment that way. Uh, I you you have to first acquire a skill set. You have to first be able to do something properly. For example, Picasso. He he was an excellent painter. He was very skilled when he decided to to try to see things from a different approach, it had meaning to it. And, and that of course applies to, to bookbinding as well. That's not to say you, you can't experiment, but uh, you have to know where, where you're standing and you have to know where you're going uh, because it's pointless otherwise. I, I think uh, it's also important to be a part of a tradition, if not in a narrow sense, that certainly in a wide sense, like Western li literature, 
which is basically a millennia old uh, conversations hmm. between uh, between authors that uh, share neither a century or a continent. I mean, the Russian uh, the Russian literature is a continuation of ancient Greek literature in some sense, and so and so I think any any art form should be like that. You you should know what, who came before you and hmm. what they did hmm. and why they they did it. And if you do something differently, why you do something differently? Just because you don't want to repeat them or because your purposes, your aims changed, your feelings changed? This, uh, this kind of circles back to uh, what I said about, you know, why, why Greek, what's the relationship between uh, Greek book binders and the Byzantine bindings um, in in contrast with other countries that had that have a, a school of bookbinding, a certain style that they've been working on for many centuries, there's a disconnection in the case of Greece. So uh, we're kind of trying to redefine where do we stand uh, at this moment so that we can have a direction. And it's not, it's a, it's a difficult task because uh, you're you're defined by your past, but if your past, uh, if the links, uh, as is the case with bookbinding here in Greece, have been severed, do you make new ones? Do you try to completely reinvent yourself? And is there a sense of direction, or do you do you have to to make one yourself? So it's. Um, these are questions that uh, don't have an easy answer. And this also reminds me of, of uh, Stopan, our guest from Bulgaria, who sort of tries to recreate this, uh, this traditional binding, uh, uh, Bulgarian binding in, in, in the modern world. And, uh, uh, and uh, that's the, the process isn't easy one. And, mm. uh, True. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes and uh, strange things and then uh, you you create something beautiful and uh, well I've, I've had some great discussions with stopan with kalin on uh, on that yeah and um, uh, one of the things i said at one point is that there is a dilemma when it comes you know to to getting to getting in touch with with the past because you can fall into the trap of of copying it, uh, which is you know the the easy route. But if you decide not to, uh, how do you creatively incorporate something that's that you don't belong to, uh, that you are not seeing it done right now? How do you incorporate that in your work? and reach something new. Uh, that's that's a, a very difficult and daunting even task. And I think Stopan Kalin, again, yeah. my mistake, has, um, <laughs> has some, some great ideas in that direction. And uh, uh, we, could, we could perhaps learn from his journey. 
and and also uh, like like you he uh, collaborates with his relatives his father in particular um, I, I i i when i heard that you come from uh, an artist family i thought that wouldn't it be great if you could collaborate with your father imagine that working with your father now nothing connects you with the past uh, like that hardly anyone does that anymore I'm somewhat envious of, of Kalim, actually. Hmm. True, true enough. It's um, it's it it adds, you know, it adds a lot of stuff. It adds um, a lot of emotion, and it takes it takes uh, the result into into a different dimension when there's there's more than one pair of hands involved in it in such a crucial way um, and i i saw that recently in you know perhaps my first true collaboration i i made i made the tool for a binding another binder made but both the tool and the binding had a theme to it, to them you know they they weren't just a tool or just a binding uh, they they had a story to them, so it was it was uh, it was a very interesting back and forth because the specific binder works very differently from me, and his style is very different from mine, and so the the result because the tool and the binding work together as a display. Um, the result um, shows, shows, uh, shows a direction. It has a character of its own that takes into account both of our personalities. And that's uh, when you get to do that with your own family, um, it, you know, the, the binding acquires an even deeper identity. Or when you get to do that with, you know, your community in some way, the bookbinding community, it, the result becomes a mark in time. Here is what, you know, the bookbinders in this city or this country are doing right now. This is, this is, uh, a picture taken, a, a bubble in time, you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I took it too far. Too philosophical. <laughs> I don't know. No, it was perfect. Uh, we just need to take a breath before, you know. I wanted to discuss uh, uh, you making tools, and uh, you sort of talked about it <laughs> just right now, but uh, it's now. You know, returning to Earth from from this uh, heavens. <laughs> this is the machining corner of the bindery, where tool making happens. For those of you that may not know, I make tools for book binding. They are mostly finishing tools, and they are available to anyone interested. I spend a lot of time on this bench which has grown steadily over the years. When I first began making tools, I think it was 10 years ago,
I only had a small white table to work with. It's actually that one over there. And the main piece of equipment here is this milling machine, which is very useful. It does a lot of things. And here are some of the tools I'm currently preparing. You can see some band nippers and some type holders which I've prepared, then they were cast and now they're all rough and need a lot of milling and sanding and polishing to be ready for use. Same goes with the stylus tools here. By the way, I've tidied up the bench as I did with the rest of the bindery for the sake of this tour, but I didn't clean it so you could see its natural state after several days of tool making. That lovely substance here is bronze dust. I wanted to ask you a practical question. Sure. Because, uh, it's something that I struggle with always, how you are able not to uh, to limit the spread of all this dust and uh, stuff that uh, uh, that is created when you are making uh, tools. I think it's it's a bit easier with metals because uh, uh, the shavings are uh, heavier, heavier, mm. and they fall down faster. Uh, at least if you are you know machining machining uh, metal, if you are sanding metal, uh, they still spread uh, like all over the place. But uh, you work with wood as well, so I guess uh, uh, there is some dust uh, generated during these processes. Uh, so how do you how do you cope with that? Because it's always a problem for me. And uh, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> the the short know your tip. The short answer is I don't. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> the I, that's why the machining corner is uh, you know at the far end of the of the bindery away from the books and the leathers um, when it comes to you know to to milling of course the pieces are heavy and they don't go uh, far off but when it comes to sanding especially uh, the finer yeah. stages of sanding uh, it it gets everywhere it gets everywhere i've I've tried to make some contraptions, some enclosures to limit that. But in the end, you kind of accept that, okay, I have to live with this. I remember a time uh, several years ago when I uh, was, uh, you know, making uh, some new tools and I had so much dust in the bindery that I... Yeah. I could feel it in my lungs for months, in my throat. Uh, it was nasty. And to think that I was, I did wear, you know, protection. I did wear a mask. Um, but uh, you can do a few things to limit it. But the ideal, the ideal situation is to have all that in a different space, you know, in a different room. Yeah, that that that's that would be a perfect solution. 
I, I don't know if you would like to, to see some of the tools I make. I have some here for you. Yeah, sure. I, I also have some tools of yours. <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's a long story because uh, you sent them to me like four years ago or something. And I promised you to, to review them and uh, never did that because I, I, in the last few years, I never did any, any real bookbinding projects. So uh, I'm, I'm quite ashamed that I never uh, fulfilled my promise, but at least now we have a chance to, you know, to showcase your tools. And I can say that while I never, never use them on any real project, I definitely tried to, to use them and I, I love them. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's what, at least a small compensation for oh, it's, all this. It's okay. You know. <laughs> I, I totally understand how you know things can get in in a can go in a different way, and you get too busy, you know, for for this yeah. or that. It's yeah. it happens. Yeah. Um, anyway, the the reason I I started making tools was actually because I didn't have access to any, and they were. And there weren't any mm -hmm. people making them here. Um, and it was too expensive to order them from abroad. And so since I had some very basic metal working and jewelry making skills, I thought uh, in, uh, uh, in arrogance perhaps that I could make them myself. But uh, as it turns out, it's much more difficult and expensive to learn to make something than actually making that something. Uh, but anyway, I, I persisted. It was the only option and I also really liked the process. So I made, uh, I made a few. Uh, they looked horrible. I made a few more. They looked less horrible. And over time, I managed to make uh, some tools that I felt I could, you know, share with the community, make them available. And over time, mm -hmm. this, this brought me here. Uh, tool, tool making is, is, uh, is becoming a bigger and bigger part in what I do in my everyday, you know, work in the bindery. Um, I should add that we will link your Etsy uh, shop in, 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 the, in the description below and as well as your other uh, you know, places mm, where people blog. can find yeah. your works like your Instagram account and your website, uh, your blog. Uh, so yeah, go to Dimitri's shop and uh, check, uh, check his tools, uh, visit, visit his blog and uh, read his posts because it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good read. And here you can see a great idea for storing drill bits. I think you'll find it very useful if you work with power tools or have a workshop of shorts. Um, usually drill bits are stored on horizontal slabs with holes on them and they take up a lot of space on your work surface. But this skyscraper approach keeps everything at arm's length and it has a very small footprint.
this is something that if you're doing goldsmithing or make jewelry either as a hobbyist or as a professional you'll probably be familiar with the axle at the center spins at high speed and this allows me to sand and polish the tools with ease reaching the final part of the tour here's a look of um, some finishing presses I've made these two and this one they've been quite the hit since I've made them I've had a lot of people ask me if they are available unfortunately they're not I only made them to have enough for my bookbinding seminars since each student needs their own to work with however the reason I'm showing them to you is that um, if it's not already apparent I'm a very DIY person and you can see that with uh, the the sewing frames here which I've also made there are a few more up there at the top and I've also made the benches you've seen so far I've even made the coat hanger next to the door which has been very divisive some people loved it some people hate it in any case I I not only enjoy making books but I also enjoy making the things that help me make books and I think this is this is an important part of being an artisan a craftsman to be able to create the tools of your own trade they are made according to your requirements they feel right when you handle them and you get to care for them in a different way and I think that's important of course you don't have to be able to make everything that's impossible but at least some of them and finally this is my board shear which I bought about a year and a half ago I've been doing bookbinding for I think 12 years prior to that without having one and let me tell you this thing is a real time saver it can reduce a three hour cutting by hand ordeal down to five minutes and if you multiply that by dozens of times during the span of a year you can see what I'm talking about so if you are thinking of seriously getting into bookbinding definitely get one of those as early as you can now here you can see a makeshift fence I've made the one the board shear came with was actually facing the opposite direction it was like this and it came this way and I find it I found it difficult and uncomfortable to work with and it also it didn't it didn't sat straight because it had two moving parts it I could never get it to to set at a sharp 90 degree angle so I removed it and made this one which brings me to the restoration part when I bought this it 
it needed some amount of restoration. It wasn't at the worst possible condition, but still it needed a lot of work. And you can read about that at a blog post, which I've posted, and documents parts of that process. And I think you'll find a few useful advice there regarding the difficulties that you may face if you're trying if you're thinking of buying a cast iron piece of equipment and restoring it yourself. So, I think this is it folks. Hope you enjoyed the tour and thank you very much for watching. Thanks. Thanks so lot. are you planning any new tools and uh, and how 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 what are the plans here? I understand that you told that you you do not plan to sell uh, finishing presses, which is uh, a pity because when I saw them in, in your video, I was like, okay, I want one. <laughs> well, and, then, and then right after that, you tell that you're not planning on selling them. And I, I can understand why, but uh, mm. uh, still maybe, maybe some other things. Well, um, you could always make the same, uh, the same ones. It's, uh, they're really nice and you definitely have both the skills and the tools to do so. Uh, but yeah. anyway, I like I I need five five more hours in a day to do that. Well, that's uh, that's usually <laughs> the crux of it. Uh, they yeah, yeah. Uh, they they take too much time. I I have many many plans for the tools. Uh, I always I'm always thinking of uh, of what I can make next or how can I improve. Uh, the tools I already have, for example, the the band nippers are uh, practically the third iteration. The stylus set I have, mm -hmm. I have one, you know, here as well. Don't know if you can yeah. see it. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's uh, it. Yeah, we we have some photos. We'll we'll, we'll oh, okay. use them. Okay, great. I. I um, but I also have, you know, some, you could say, crazy plans regarding the tools. Uh, I won't, I won't give them away yet. Uh, I want it to be a surprise. <laughs> but I think, I think you can do, you can do interesting things with them. And um, I've uh, tried a couple of times to, you know, to move in that direction. I've had some some special editions, but um, I think I think you can do you can do even more with uh, with those. And mm -hmm. you've, I, you've, you've mentioned the project where uh, uh, the book and the tool were connected in some way. Um, uh, that that's something I've never heard of before. Uh, hmm. book, uh, book binding tools as an art form that would be interesting too you can you can check it uh, at my blog it's called uh, the if you title if you search animalcula uh, you'll come up with uh, with the binding and the tool and um, it's uh, it, it was uh, quite fun working on that one because i I got to experiment with the tool as, you know, as part of the design. 
it it didn't it didn't simply have to to fulfill its uh, its purpose its practical purpose so the end result was sort of whimsical you know well i guess that's that's really most of it and uh, if if you wanted to share uh, with us something uh, something else about your tools uh, uh, we will definitely uh, uh, use uh, some photos of the tools in the video and uh, uh, we'll give the links uh, but yeah if if you want to add something uh, i guess that's that's your chance if i had to add something from my tools it would be that um... I, um, as I said, I'm constantly trying to improve them. And I got the chance to do this in, in a very nice way with the new stylus set for which I collaborated mm -hmm. with Karen Hanmer from the US. She, mm -hmm. she received a survey and some, and various uh, samples and she got to um, to test all that with uh, students at her seminars and she provided valuable feedback and i'm really proud of the result because uh, it's not something that you know uh, came out from my specific understanding of the tools function and how how it should perform there's a lot of community feedback in there and mm -hmm. it's something i i want to to keep doing with the uh, uh, next projects when it's possible i i feel it's important that a tool has you know has that input in um, in making it and I hope that uh, people who own the tools or buy the tools will get to see that when they use them. Yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right. And uh, I also feel that uh, uh, because I, I all the time I have uh, conversations with my clients uh, uh, who use the tools and they tell some things uh, uh, about their own experiences. And uh, as, as you said, I, I try hmm. to improve the designs all the time. And uh, uh, I, I, I don't know, most of all my tools are at least at, uh, at the level of, of third version. Some of them are six or seventh versions uh, uh, of the original tool. So uh, it's, it's a process of constant improvement and it, it brings me a lot of hmm. joy, the, the process uh, itself. Uh, but then when I see that uh, new customers uh, receive the updated tools and they, 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 they understand the improvement and they uh, like it. And uh, uh, it's also, yeah, it, it, it mm. really joyful yeah, a moment. Uh, but then some other people come and uh, sit and uh, ask me to make improvements before they make an order. And sometimes it's mm. reasonable. I, sometimes I recently not, so, had someone uh, uh, asked me to to do you know a very custom version of uh, of one of my stylus tools and mm -hmm. it was interesting because i would have never thought what he asked for and it's this you know it's this back and forth that makes this process 
uh, important because in the end I want, as you do, to make something that will be uh, very useful and a pleasure to use. And you need you need to have that communication. You know, you need to have that uh, feedback from the community, whether in the designing phase or after a tool is out there, to to make it as good as possible. So, Pavel, do you want to add something, or should we? We should perhaps wrap uh, up. I can hardly concentrate by now, frankly speaking. It's it's my <laughs> fifth hour in, in in the Zoom, so. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dimitris. It was a great pleasure to see you uh, al almost like in real life mm -hmm. and uh, to finally talk to you and to hear your story. Uh, thank yeah. you. I thank you very much yeah. uh, again for the invitation. And it was it was a great talk. I, uh, as I as I've said, I was kind of nervous at the you know at the thought of it, but uh, it was nothing like that. It was it was great. I hope you will return to to our podcast, maybe to the shorter version of our uh, podcast, uh, Bookish Talk, uh, to discuss uh, some of your new tools or bindings in the future. Uh, and um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Would be a pleasure. And and uh, many thanks to all our community members, uh, all uh, everybody who. Uh, you subscribe to our channel uh, on YouTube or who visits uh, our Instagram account and uh, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Uh, thanks to their uh, pledges, we are able to pay for editing of these videos and that, uh, that, that really helps a lot. Uh, if you are ready to uh, um, share a dollar or more per month with us, uh, please uh, use the link below and uh, become one of our uh, Patreon supporters. This year, it may be even more important because we have some plans to uh, add additional hosts to our project and uh, uh, include a, a start a French speaking branch of our podcast. Uh, and uh, this will be uh, possible, of course, if we have enough budget for that. So <laughs> join the crowd. <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks a lot for watching. And uh, if you haven't subscribed, uh, consider subscribing. And uh, uh, see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.